Amen. Amen. What powerful words. What amazing uh, time of rejoicing and singing and worshiping the Lord through song. What a blessing. Thank you, Luke, and the music team who leads us so faithfully every Sunday. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is where we will be this morning. And as you're turning there, I wanted to ask you, I I don't know if anybody in here knows, uh, a man by the name of Jocko Willink. Anybody know that guy? Jocko Willink? You guys know? Yeah? Josh knows? Anybody other than Josh? All right, so you're going to have to look this guy up, Jocko Willink. As his name sounds, he's done some pretty amazing things in his life. He is a member of the Navy SEALs, uh, SEAL team leader, went to Ramadi, uh, Iraq, and served in a number of tours in the war over there. Uh, leader of several different SEAL teams, written several different books about his experiences in battle. But uh, more than just hearing about him, you, you have to see him. You have to see. Uh, he, he is the Hulk. Just picture the Hulk in your mind. He's 5'11". He's 230 pounds. He's all muscle. He has muscles on his muscles. He has muscles in places that I don't even have places. He is so massive. And so if you go online, you look at YouTube, you look at one of the TED Talks that he gave, the best part of the TED Talk is just the comments underneath the, the, the video. Let me just give you a couple of them. When, when Jocko does push-ups, they're actually earth downs. Jocko wakes his alarm clock up every morning. When Jocko was 10 years old, he decided to live by himself. His parents just moved to another house. Uh, I showed this TED Talk to my cat, and now it's a lion. Uh, I I showed this TED Talk to my little brother, and now he's older than me. When Jocko steps on a Lego brick, the Lego brick cries out in pain. A thief enters Jocko's house, sees Jocko sleeping, and goes and cleans the dishes, mops the floor, and leaves. And my personal favorite, Jocko sleeps with a pillow under his gun, and he also has a grizzly bear rug in his room. The bear isn't dead, it's just too afraid to move. (laughs) He is amazing. You should look him up. He's incredible. He wrote a book called The Dichotomy of Leadership. Excellent little book uh, that I read a while ago, and it describes how it takes stark dichotomies, specifically in battle, uh, to win, to be successful. And then he applies those in everyday life. I'll just give you a couple of these dichotomies of leadership. You have to be confident. A good leader is confident, but not cocky. A good leader is courageous, but not foolhardy. A good leader is attentive to detail, but not obsessed by them. A good leader is humble, but not passive, quiet, but not silent, calm, but not robotic, aggressive, but not overbearing, able to lead while at the same time able to follow. I was thinking about our passage when we saw the lion and the lamb in one person. Jesus Christ is the dichotomy of dichotomies. He is the dichotomy of all dichotomies. He is, to use a phrase by Jonathan Edwards, he is the most excellent of all diversities. He's a lion, and at the exact same time, he's a lamb. Jonathan Edwards, an old Puritan pastor in the 1700s, he said this, there is an admirable conjunction of meeting of diverse and paradoxical elements in the person of Christ that just come together. These two polar opposites come together in an excellent way. In fact, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on the text before us this morning, and it was just called The Diverse Excellencies of Christ. And he just talks about how all of these opposite factors come together in one person in Jesus. He says this, quote, A lion is a devourer one that is able and desires to make a terrible slaughter of others. No creature falls more easily prey to a lion than a lamb. The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. Besides the excellent nature of the creature as good for food and yielding that which is fit for our clothing and being suitable to be offered in sacrifice to God. But in Jesus Christ, we see both. Because the diverse excellencies of both the lion and the lamb wonderfully meet in him. What a meeting of infinite highness and low condescension do we see in the person 
of Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain that Jesus has infinite justice and infinite grace. He has infinite glory and lowest humility. He has infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. He has deepest reverence toward God the Father and yet is equal to God himself. He's exceeding in his spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. So he obeys the Father while he rules as God himself. He is absolutely sovereign and perfect in his resignation to submit to the will of the Father. So Edward says, in Jesus Christ's life, and especially in his suffering and in his death, he appears as paradoxically both lion and lamb. In Christ's greatest weakness, he was the strongest. And that's what we looked at last week in Revelation chapter 5, the lamb who was slain. Remember at the very beginning of chapter 5, John sees this scroll in the right hand of God the Father. And this scroll is the title deed to the earth. It's the ownership of the earth. And it's also all of the unfolding of every event of human history to culminate in the sovereign rule of God over all things. And yet this scroll is sealed up. And unless it's open, God will not win. God will not reign sovereignly over everything. God will not have control. God will not make right that which is wrong. And if that scroll remains closed, not only will Satan win, but also there is no end to the evil that he will propagate in this world. And so there is a cry that goes out in heaven. Is there anyone worthy to be able to take the scroll and open it? And no one is worthy. No creature, no angel, no animal, no human. And then an elder goes up to John and says, stop weeping. Stop weeping. He's weeping because there's no hope. Human history has no end. It's doomed. And apart from Jesus, truly only weeping exists. If you are not where Jesus is, you are in a place where only weeping exists. But the elder comes up and says, stop weeping because there is one who is worthy. He is the lion who has conquered. And when you hear lion who has conquered, you're expecting to see a lion with blood in its mouth devouring its prey. But instead, John turns and he sees a lamb not with blood in its mouth, but blood on its neck. It has been slaughtered, just its neck drenched in blood, mottled together. And as he turns and he sees Jesus, he sees Jesus, the worthy one, take that scroll. He is allowed to take it. He doesn't wait to be given the scroll. He goes up and he takes it. He rightfully won the ownership and the unfolding of that scroll. And so John turns and he sees this lamb and he knows that this lamb, as the lamb takes the scroll and opens it, which is the remainder of the book of Revelation, it's how the unfolding of the scroll happens. The lamb is worthy. And because the lamb is worthy, as the lamb takes the scroll, all of heaven just erupts in praise. I mean, they cannot contain themselves. They're going to sing things. They're going to say things. They're going to shout things. They, they cannot contain themselves. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want to look at their praises of Jesus Christ and see them as a worship manual for ourselves. Really, the book of Revelation is to the New Testament what the book of Psalms is to the Old Testament. It's the worship manual for the church. How the church should respond in worship, we see how it's supposed to be done as we see heaven, all of heaven praising God. And specifically, we will see just two main aspects of their praise. They are praising Jesus, number one, for who he is, and number two, for what he's done. That's it. They're just praising Jesus for who he is and for what he's done. So let's read this chapter together, ask God's blessing on our morning, and we will dive in and see this heavenly worship of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or a scroll written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep and to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping 
Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome or conquered so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, to break its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Father, I, I feel as if we could end our morning there. We've been ushered into the throne room. We have seen what is taking place even now before your throne. And all we want to do is align ourselves with what is happening in heaven. Even as we studied in Uh, Luke chapter 11, with the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, we saw your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We desire for your kingdom to be here so that we can do here what's happening now in heaven. So let us do that here now. Father, enable us to worship your son. So often we just think of worship as singing, and it is, but it's not only that. Father, raise in us affections for Christ. Bring them to the surface. Let them erupt in praise in our own hearts right now as we're studying. May we see Christ. May we see his beauty, his glory, how amazing he is with the beautiful, excellent diversities that are found in him. And may we worship Jesus, the lamb who is slain, to purchase men and women for God. May we see him this morning through the eyes of faith, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this book. And as our brother Daniel prayed, may we do something from it. You are going to call us to action in some way, shape, or form. You're going to call us to live differently as we think differently and as we feel differently. So transform us by the renewing of our mind this morning. And may Jesus Christ be glorified for who he is for what he has done. We pray it in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, we will split this section up into really two main sections, verses 8 through 10, and then verse 11 through the rest of the chapter. We are going to worship Jesus together for who he is and for what he's done. We're going to flip that around. We're going to start, number one, worshiping Jesus. We're going to see heaven worship Jesus for what he has done. Verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, falling down, total submission, humble submission before him. They can't stand in his presence. He can stand in the presence of the father. They cannot stand in the presence of the lamb. They fall down. And they're holding harps and golden bowls full of incense. What are these? Harps, they're, they're, this is, by the way, where people have gotten that 
uh, depiction in their mind of us being in heaven, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp. Uh, that's not exactly what's happening here. Number one, this word for harp isn't harp the way that we think of it. It's actually more of uh, kind of what a guitar would be. Um, it makes loud music. This isn't soft, dainty plucking of strings. This is loud music that's being made. In the Old Testament, it was a symbol of prophecy, of, of speaking on behalf of God. And, and in the Old Testament, it was a, a symbol of joy and gladness. Anytime you were happy, you grabbed your harp, you grabbed your guitar, you grabbed some musical instrument, and you played, and you sang because you were so overflowing with joy and gladness that you couldn't hold it in. In fact, we see the opposite. In Psalm 137, you see the Israelites hanging up their harps. They say, we're done playing. Why? Because they've been taken captive, and the glory of God has departed from Jerusalem. So a harp is just an imagery of just insane happiness. Why are they so filled with joy? Because the lamb is worthy to open that scroll. Because there is coming a day when every wrong will be made right. When justice will prevail. Human history has an end point and it ends with God reigning in righteousness and us ruling and reigning with him. John Stott says it this way, apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, history is an enigma. If Jesus is not the lamb slain to redeem us, then history is an enigma. We don't know what's going to happen. So they're, they're happy, they're full of joy, and they're holding these golden bowls full of incense, which we are told explicitly what the incense is. It's not just a sweet-smelling aroma. It's symbolic of the prayers of the saints. What are they praying? The saints are praying that every wrong would be made right, that the, God's kingdom would come that his will would be done for our needs to be met in the interim, for our faith to be held, to be kept, to be sustained until Christ comes back, for Christ to be our greatest joy, our greatest delight, and our greatest satisfaction. But notice it doesn't differentiate who these saints are. It doesn't just say certain saints or only the saints in heaven. It just says the prayers of all of the saints. That includes you and me. As we were studying prayer in small groups, I want this image to just constantly be ringing in your mind. In these bowls, your prayers go. When you pray, they go right into these bowls. And where are these bowls? They're right in the center of the throne room around the Father. How intimate and how near to God are your prayers? You pray them, he takes them, he places them in a bowl that sits right next to him. And he constantly hears them, knows them. They're a sweet-smelling aroma to him. And he acts on behalf of his people. Verse 9, they sang a new song. Oh, I love this. They sang a new song. This isn't new as in time, as in they have never sung the song before and they are just starting to sing it for the very first time right now. This is new as in quality, the standpoint of quality. Uh, another way we could say it is it's fresh. It's as if they're singing it for the very first time, even though they've sung it a million times before. You know, this is the verse that I would go to. People ask me all the time, or they'll just tell me, I don't want to go to heaven because heaven sounds really boring. And I say, explain to me what you mean by heaven being boring. And as we get into the conversation, inevitably, at some point, they say, all we're doing is singing, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp. And that sounds boring. Well, number one, that's not all we're doing. And we're going to look at this as we get deeper into the book of Revelation. But number two, even if that were the only thing that we did in heaven, Every time we sang that song, it would feel as if we're singing it for the very first time. According to this verse, I go to this verse, I see this is a new song. This isn't new as in uh, they've never done it before. They've totally sung this song before. In fact, they're singing it now, but it's still being sung as if it were a new song. Though this song has been sung over and over and over and over and over again, it's never boring, it's never dull, it never wears out. Why? Because we cannot get over this. Every time we finish this song, 
we have to start something else, whether it's the exact same song or it's a song like it, we have to start something else because we cannot get over the lamb. We can't get over it. Why are they so filled with joy and so excited to sing this song? Well, you can see part of it in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because you were slain, literally slaughtered. It's one of my favorite Greek words. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, and we get our English translations from the Greek New Testament. New Testament word for slain, spagidzomai. It just sounds like something's being slaughtered. It's a, it's a graphic word that you've been spagidzomaid. You've had your throat cut open and blood poured out. That's why they're singing. But why did Jesus have to be slaughtered? Because without him being slaughtered, the middle and end of verse 9 won't happen. Because of him being slaughtered, we've been purchased for God. Because of his blood being poured out, men from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group will be represented in heaven. But without him being slain, we have no redemption. We have no forgiveness of sins. J.I. Packer says it this way, Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined. And so won for us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. To affirm this reality of Christ bearing our penalty on the cross, bearing away the penalty for our sins, is to say that all believers are in debt to Jesus, specifically for this, and that this is the mainspring of all their joy, peace, and praise, both now and for all of eternity. So why are they so excited about singing this song? Because, brothers and sisters, in heaven, we will not be able to get over the fact that we're there because of the work of Christ. We will never be able to get past the gospel. We can never get over it. You have to stop and remember your own testimony. I've had the joy, one of the, one of the biggest privileges of being a pastor is just getting to sit down and talk with almost all of you at some point and hearing your testimony. Some people have amazing testimonies where they're just and they remember the date, the moment, the hour, the minute when they came to Christ. Some people don't remember that. And I would say they're all miracles because regeneration is always miraculous. Nobody has a boring testimony. But why is this song never going to get boring? Think about your own testimony. Think about the reality of the gospel. I, Patrick Carmichael, Living in my sin, not caring at all what it would do to me, not caring at all the offense that it was to God. In fact, enjoying it. Living in my sin. Despite the fact that I grew up at church, despite the fact that I grew up with parents who taught me about Christ. And then one day, oh, I hope you remember the day for you. I hope you remember a time period. I hope you remember a season when something changed. Then one day, God gripped my heart through the preaching of the gospel, which says so clearly and so explicitly, I'm a lawbreaker. All of us are. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God demands perfection, and we can't be perfect. And the wages of our sin is death. It's separation from God. It's separation from God. We know this. We know this even in a temporal sense. If you break the law by speeding, what are you going to get? You're going to get a ticket. So if you break the law in a cosmic infinite sense by offending an infinitely holy God, then you're not just going to get a $500 ticket. The wages of your offense against God will be infinite. I remember when the gospel was preached and I heard it and it's as if I heard it for the first time even though I know 
I had heard it so many times before. And it was in that moment that I saw the provision made for me not to have to die. So you're telling me that somebody loves me so much that they would say, I will take Patrick's penalty so that Patrick does not have to bear that penalty. I will die the death that he deserves. I will rise to newness of life and I'll give him not only forgiveness for all of his sins and not only a perfect record of righteousness that Jesus Christ won for me by never sinning ever on this earth, but I will bring him into my family, adopt him as my son and give him the full inheritance of all of heaven right here, right now, just if you would believe. And I remember from that moment forward, my life was never the same, ever. How can we get beyond the gospel? How can we get beyond the beauty of Christ being so loving and so selfless that he would give himself for you? Jim Ellis writes, one is taken aback by the emphasis upon the cross in the book of Revelation. Heaven does, never, does not get over the cross ever, and it doesn't get over the cross as if there are better things to think about. Oh no, heaven is Christ-centered and cross-centered and quite blaring about it. Just can't hold it in. So we're never going to get over this. In the new heavens and in the new earth, we will never get over this. We will never grow overly familiar with this. We'll never be anything less than increasingly amazed by this. And if, if that's what's going to happen one day in heaven, then we better start it now. For all the noise that's happening in heaven, as heaven is blaring about Jesus Christ, then we better be blaring about it here on earth. We better be blaring about Christ. If Jesus wanted to save us, but he had no power to save us, then we'd be hopeless. If he had the power to save us, but he had no desire to save us, then we'd be hopeless. If he had the power to save us, and he had the desire to save us, but we were unsavable. There was no way that we could be saved, we'd be hopeless. If he wanted to save us, and he had the power to save us, but evil reigned over him such that he couldn't save us, then we'd be hopeless. But my friends, Jesus not only had the power to save us, the ability to save us. We were not so far gone that we were unsavable. And Jesus reigned over evil such that he could say, get out of the way, this is my child. I'm so thankful he had the power. I'm so thankful he had all of those things. But you know, at the center of what he had, he had a love for you. He had a desire for you. I'm so thankful that he's powerful, that he could go beyond anything that evil could throw at him, but I am so thankful that he was willing and loved us. And brothers and sisters, we can never get over that. We can never get over that. The only reason we get over that here on earth is because of sin, because of our flesh, because of finite things creeping into our minds and taking our affections away and distracting our minds, but we will never get over it. Finally, when we are in heaven, we'll never get over it. The amazement of the only reason why we're here in heaven is because of the lamb who was slain. And every time we turn around to leave heaven's throne room and walk around with other saints, we're going to say, wait, why am I even here? How could I even be here? It's only because of the lamb. Let's go back and praise. It's all about Jesus. And I, I just want to plead with you right now. If you don't know why Jesus is so worthy of your affections, if you don't know why Jesus is so amazing that for all of eternity we will never get tired of worshiping him. And don't leave today until you've talked with somebody up here, Daniel who read the scripture, Sergio who gave the announcements. Don't leave until you know why this Jesus is so amazing. As the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can cling to him for the very first time as Lord and Savior and as your heart's greatest treasure. We're never going to get over this. Middle of verse 9, Jesus died, and in dying, he purchased us, and he got exactly what he paid for. He was slain, that's the event. He purchased men and women for God, that's the meaning of the event, and we then serve and reign with him, which is the effect of the event. We've been purchased for God. Middle of verse 9, Middle of this song, Jesus was slain. He was slaughtered on a cross. 
And in his being slaughtered on that cross, he made a payment for you and for me. We were stuck in the slave market of sin, as it were. We could not get ourselves out. We couldn't purchase our own freedom. We couldn't fight our way out. We were stuck. Somebody had to come and redeem us. That's why there's such language in the Bible about redemption or being ransomed, right? Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that we are ransomed. He came and he gave his life as a ransom for many. And we have been purchased for God. We've been redeemed from the curse of the law for God's glory, as Luke read this morning. There's a beautiful story. There's an illustration of this in Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he was working as a county lawyer, and he went to a slave market where he saw the despicable act of men and women being treated as property, being sold as, as property and not as humans. And he cast the highest bid for a slave at the auction. And having purchased the slave, Lincoln immediately set that slave free. The man, totally lost in awe for this moment, said, Mr. Lincoln, are you really setting me free from these chains? Lincoln said, yes. The slave said, are you saying that I no longer have to follow a master? Lincoln said, yes, you are free to go wherever you wish. And the man looked at Lincoln and said, then I want to go with you. You purchased my freedom. You, you have the means of making me free. And you have the love in your heart, not only the ability, but the willing desire to do it. I want to stay with you. I want to go wherever you go. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. And that's why those of you in this room who love Jesus, that's exactly how you feel. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed, and you're free to, to live in an everlasting relationship with him. You love him. You want to be with him. You purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Tribe, tongue, people, and nation. A beautiful way of describing the universality of the work of Jesus. There is no people group in the world that this work doesn't touch but also the particular nature of it. Men, men and women, human beings. So it's not every single people group will all be represented and each person in that people group will all be represented. No, there's specific people inside of every people group. Universal and particular. Universal and specific. But what an amazing verse. God has purchased, through the work of Jesus, People from every single tribe, nation, language, tongue. There isn't one that's left out. This is the verse that motivated William Carey to go to China. He read this verse and he says, I got to go. There's people in China that Jesus purchased that don't even know about Christ. I got to go. I, I have to go. This is the verse that should motivate you and me. And it should motivate us to two things. Number one, evangelism. Absolutely. Obviously, there are people out there who need to hear the gospel. Like the apostle said in the book of Acts, right? There are men and women in this city that Christ has redeemed, but they just don't even know it yet. Let's go tell them. With the gospel on our lips, let's go. Let's go. We need to go. It should also, number two, be a huge motivation to unity. Look at the beautiful diversity that's there at the throne room of heaven. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, every ethnic group. We're all the human race, so there's not multiple races. It's every ethnic group. And I, I think that the, the church universal here on earth tends to not look like what the church in heaven looks like. I've heard it said that Sunday mornings are the most segregated hours in the whole week for the American church getting together. Can't wait for the day when we can be in heaven unified. So let's, let's worship Jesus the way that heaven's worshiping now. Let's live unified the way that heaven's unified right now. Instead, I think, unfortunately, the church struggles with this. One author put an old hymn uh, with new language, with new words to kind of give a caricature. Um, you know the, the hymn, Like a River Glorious. Uh, 
He wrote different words. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. We are all divided, many bodies we, very strong on doctrine, but weak on charity. Weak on unity, weak on love. If Christ has purchased for the glory of God with his own blood, at the cost of his own life, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we, we need to go. We need to share Christ with boldness. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests, verse 10, to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I love this. They did not attain to be in the kingdom. They did not attain to be priests. It's very specific language. You made them to be. We couldn't make ourselves to be, so we had to be made by God to be these things. And what is it? We're a kingdom. Together, we are the kingdom of God. We are representatives of the kingdom, living in the kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom. And we're priests. We're priests, not only priests called by God to serve, but priests called by God to serve as mediators between those who don't know Jesus and God himself who wants them to hear. And we will reign upon the earth with Christ for all eternity. That's why we start with point number one. Our worship needs to be that of the worship in heaven. And what are we worshiping God for? We're worshiping Jesus Christ for what he has done. But the praise doesn't end there. Number two, starting in verse 11 and finishing out this passage, we worship God not only for what he has done, but number two, we worship Jesus for who he is. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. That's a transliteration of a Greek word. So myriads is a Greek word. It's, it's the largest number that they could come up with. It's, it's like saying uh, infinity. And then thousands of thousands. I love that. I love this Greek construction. John wants us to know that there's no way you can count all of these angels. And so he says infinity times infinity And in case that's not enough, let's add a couple thousands to it, right? We just need to know this is so massive, and all of heaven is quaking and thundering with praise. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And it says to receive. You could also say because he is. This is who he is. He has received this, so intrinsically this is who he is. That's why we say point number one is we praise God for what he's done. He's purchased people for God. And then we praise God, number two, for who he is intrinsically. And there are seven descriptions. Seven descriptions of who he is intrinsically. This is really the meat of the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached on the diverse excellencies of Christ. Number one, receive power. Power is omnipotent strength. It's not physical force. It's not being able to win an arm wrestling contest. It's intrinsic worth, value, and authority. And that's why Jesus has it. We know he has it because he's the only one worthy to open that scroll. You and I could physically open the seals, but we don't have the authority. Jesus has the authority. So power is, you could almost think of it in an authoritative perspective, in a a sense of such worth, such value, such massive uh, power and authority. Same word is used in Acts chapter 1. You remember when Jesus tells the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will get power. You're going to receive power. It doesn't mean that they instantly all just went through P90X in a, in a week and got swole really fast. That means that they got an authority that they didn't have before the Holy Spirit showed up. And so Jesus has this sense of authority, this sense of power to be able to do whatever he wants to do inside of his nature. And yet, here's the diverse excellencies. You can hear it, right? You can see it. He has all authority, all power. And then what does he do? He gives it up. He freely gave it up so that he could come to earth, live as a human, living inside the limitations of our humanity. He never stopped being God, but he gave up the independent exercise of what it meant to be God. And so here on earth, he didn't have that. He he laid it aside. He humbled himself. That's who he is. Secondly, he is to receive riches, which is just a word for unconditional wealth 
in every single realm, physical riches, but also spiritual riches. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul explicitly says, though he was rich, using this same word, he became poor for our sake. He gladly, willingly laid it aside and became poor so that we could inherit the riches in Christ Jesus. Diverse excellencies. He is rich, and yet he gives it up to become poor for you and for me. Number three is wisdom. Power, riches, and wisdom. The Greek word Sophia. It's intellect, it's logic, it's reasoning. This is why when Jesus was teaching, people would say, like Mark chapter 2, nobody's ever spoken like this man. He has wisdom that is far beyond anything we've ever comprehended before. God designs every single aspect of this world with wisdom, the Bible says. This is how Christ created the world. And yet, Jesus was, was happy to live inside the confines of the gospel that Paul tells us is foolishness to the world. The gospel makes no sense to the world. You're telling me I'm so bad that I need somebody else to do work that I can't do myself? And you're telling me I can't see that person and that person died on a cross and that's what brings me forgiveness? That makes no sense. Leave me to my own religious devices. I will try and be a good person. I think I am a good person. And even if I'm not, I can make my good works outweigh my bad works. That's pretty much every other worldview other than Christianity. That's why it's foolishness to the world. That a Jewish man hanging on a cross, murdered there by Romans, is our salvation. So though wise, he became living out the embodiment of foolishness. Might is the fourth one. Power, riches, wisdom, and might. This is that arm wrestling word. This is absolute physical strength. And yet Jesus, though he had absolute physical strength, he willingly gave it aside being the meekest, most humble man and willingly was nailed to a cross. Honor. Honor. In the Greek world, this word could be interchanged with price. Something having so much value, the worth of a thing. Jesus, not only power, riches, wisdom, and might, but also honor this value to the point where he is absolutely priceless. And yet, in the diverse excellencies of Christ, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. And he was gladly submitted himself to dishonorable treatment, mocking, spitting, shame, contempt, even death on a cross. Glory. Glory is weightiness, exaltation. And Christ willingly laid aside that glory to come to redeem us, to rescue us, to do the work that we needed done. Blessing, finally, number seven. Blessing comes from the Greek word uh, Eucharist, uh, which is uh, another way to describe what communion is, which is just a word for giving thanks. You're so infatuated that you, when you're in the presence of Christ, when you think about him, when you dwell on him, you just automatically give thanks. He deserves all of it because intrinsically, that's who he is. He is a blessing. He is blessed. He is intrinsically praiseworthy as a blessing. And yet, with the diverse excellencies of Christ, he who is the blessing became a curse. It's the opposite of blessing. It's curse. And he became a curse on our behalf. He would not be a blessing to us if he did not become a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. Brothers and sisters, there is only one who is worthy. And as proud sinners... We need a God willing to humiliate himself to die on a cross for us. Now, they ascribe all these things in verse 12. If you ascribe these things to anyone who is not God, you have royally messed up. If they're ascribing these aspects, these character qualities, these intrinsic values to a, a human alone or to an angel or to some created being, they are blaspheming. You can't ascribe these to anybody other than God. And so I think there may have been just a second's pause between verse 12 and verse 13. As they share all of this intrinsic honor and value and worth of who Jesus is, they're talking about him. I think John, in some way, shape, or form, is wondering, is this right? Is this okay? I think we would do well to ask that question as well. Because there are so many who would say, Jesus Christ was only a man. He was not God. And there's a lot of places you can take them, but here's one. 
Because at the end of verse 12, if all of heaven is saying this man should be praised and worshipped as God, and he's not, then God the Father is sure to step in and say, you guys have it wrong. Do not worship a man. Worship God alone. So I think there's this question mark of, is this correct praise? Like that moment when you enter a house or wouldn't be my house because my house is not good enough to have a security system on it, but you enter a building with a security system, right? And you open the door, you unlock the door, you open it, and you hear a little sound, beep. And I don't know about you, but that's one of the most anxious moments of my life, right? You hear that sound, and you think, if I punch in the wrong code, helicopters over me, and police SWAT team's going to come in, you are breaking in. I, I am so anxious in that moment. So I'm very careful, beep, 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 beep. And then there's that split second where you're waiting, that beep, you go in, you punch in your number, and you're just praying, please let it be the right number. And then you either hear the SWAT team or you hear beep, beep, and you're good, right? Ah, done. I think verse 13 is really that beep, beep for John, right? Because John's wondering, is this right? Is this okay? Is this correct praise? Verse 13, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all things in them said, I don't know what this means. Uh, some people would ascribe this to some form of Hebrew poetry or this, you know, the, the, the mountains dance and the hills shake and they clap their hands. Hills don't have hands, but they can clap their hands and rejoice in the Lord. It could be that. Some people would go beyond that to say this is literally every creature, animals, fish, whales, singing with words, saying these things. Some people say that animals can talk. Some people go back to the garden and say, that's why when a serpent is speaking to Eve, she doesn't say, what? I've never heard this before, and throw him down on the ground and stomp on his head. She's used to animals talking. I don't know. Take it if you want it. I, the Bible doesn't say explicitly. Could be poetic. Could be an absolute explicit, explicit statement of these animals singing. But the point is what they're saying. What, what do they say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb? Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And as if their praise wasn't enough, the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, let it be so. This is true. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Again, submission and worship and praise before the Lord. This event is so significant that nature, all of nature is joining in. And they worship the Lamb for who He is and for what He's done. Just as our brother Daniel prayed earlier, we need to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. I've heard one pastor say it this way, all truth and no spirit we dry up, all spirit and no truth we blow up, but spirit and truth we grow up. We've said it before in so many different ways at our church, but we, we don't want dead orthodoxy. We don't want truth, but sung and, and praise given to God in some dead way. We don't want the opposite. We don't want passionate heresy, right? We don't want that. We want passionate worship that is informed by truth. J.I. Packer was once asked, uh, Dr. Packer, it was by one of his students, what do you think of all of these emotional people coming into our churches, lifting their hands, falling on their knees, drawing attention to themselves? And his response was, my dear brother, the question is not whether we should kneel in our worship service today. The question is, shall we who will kneel one day kneel now as well? So what about you? We see all of heaven worshiping the Lamb for who he is and for what he's done. What about you? Have you knelt down in the presence of the Lamb? Have you, have you gotten over the gospel? Maybe you're here this morning and you truly have given your heart to Christ and you, you call upon him as Lord, as Savior, and as your greatest treasure, but you would say, I I've gotten over the gospel. There's other things in my heart that have grabbed my affections. There's, there, there are better things out there for me. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, go back 
to this passage. Go back to the day of your redemption. Go back to the gospel and remind yourself. Plead with the Lord to continually remind you how amazing grace truly is. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he isn't your greatest treasure, I I would plead with you right now, kneel before Christ here in this moment. Submit your heart to him. Call upon him. How, How are we to get into this kingdom? How are we to enter into heaven? The only thing that we need to enter into heaven is the knowledge of our condition such that we can't get there on our own and to cling to Christ, who is our only hope, right? John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one gets to the Father except through Christ. Trust in Jesus today and worship him as your greatest treasure. Jonathan Edwards, in conclusion of that sermon, said this, Could you choose for a friend a person like Christ with such dignity? Can you find somebody like him? And then he says this, I love this. This is the stuff of fairy tales. Just like Luke said this morning, this is too good to be true. Christ is infinitely above you and above all the princes of the earth, for he is king of kings. And yet, so honorable a person as this has offered himself to you in nearest and dearest friendship. Christ will himself give himself to you by faith with all those various excellencies that paradoxically meet together in him to your full and everlasting enjoyment. He will forever after treat you as his dear friend and you shall always be with him where he is and shall behold his glory and shall dwell with him in the most free and intimate communion and enjoyment for all eternity. We can never get over the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we are so incredibly thankful for Jesus. Oh, he is just, he's our, our greatest treasure. He's our great high priest. He is the lamb who was slain. He is the lion of Judah. He is our everything. So Father, we want to align ourselves right now with heaven. We have seen what heaven is doing right now and we want to align ourselves with heaven. If heaven is blaring about the cross, and about Jesus Christ, we want to be blaring about the cross and about Jesus Christ. We want to cry out with the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the myriads of myriads of angels and say, he is worthy. And he deserves all glory for who he is and for what he has done. Holy Spirit, enable us to praise you that way right now. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.